So I have a confession for you this morning. I am a little depressed. And the reason for that is because Christmas is over. And if you're anything like me, I mentioned this last week, I, I do, I love Christmas, I love everything about it, I really get into it. Inevitably what that means is when we get beyond Christmas, I always go through a little period of, of depression and, and just really missing things, thinking I have to wait another year before we go through this. And, and with Drew, it's, it's been especially fun because he's been so excited about all of this. Um, we're actually a little nervous about taking down the, the tree and decorations today and tomorrow um, because that's the first thing he does every morning when he wakes up is he asks us to turn the tree on. Um, and so we're not sure how he's going to react to that. But I don't know if you've ever experienced I don't know if any of you are that way as well, that you get so excited about this holiday, so excited about the season that when it's over, it's, it's a little depressing. It's a little sad. Well, I think sometimes, uh, if we're honest with one another, that sometimes we actually view our salvation that way as well. That when we come to know Christ, it's exciting. You know, we, we are excited to, to read about Jesus more and more. We're excited to tell people about him. Um, and then we get a little, little ways down the road, and we start to wonder, okay, great, Jesus has come into my life. He has changed me. He has saved me from my sins. But now what? What is, what is my life supposed to look like? What am I supposed to do? And sometimes we can actually struggle a little bit with depression, even over our, over our spiritual state of thinking, Jesus came. Yes, he came, as we've been talking about these last several weeks. He came to do the will of his Father. He came to give us life. He came to be light. He's done all of those things. Now what? Well, that's why we want to conclude this series by reminding us that whenever we celebrate Christmas, whenever we celebrate Advent, it is good and important to remember that Jesus has come, and that he came for very particular reasons. But we also need to celebrate this time of the year's year with anticipation, anticipating the fact that not only has Jesus come, but he is coming again. And that makes a huge difference. That makes a huge difference in our lives. It makes a huge difference in our world. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be looking at the fact that Jesus will come again, and we're going to be looking specifically at what the Bible t teaches us and shows us of why that's important and what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And so we're going to be looking at the end of uh, the book of Revelation, um, and although I'll be reading for us chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, which is the ending of the letter of Revelation, we're actually going to be surveying the last two chapters a little bit. So we're actually going to be looking at several passages throughout Revelation 21 and 22. So I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to, to keep it open, because we're going to be flipping around a lot. But we're going to start by looking at, at the end of the book. And at the end of this book, we'll see that Jesus promises to return. And that is extremely important, and that is extremely practical for us today. So I'd ask you to stand in reverence to God's Word. And I'll be reading chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. 
I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the, for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time of the year when we can gather as as friends and as family and as your church and to remember that Jesus has come. And that he has come to give us life and to give us life abundantly. He has come to be the light to this dark world. But Lord, may we not forget that He has also promised to return, and that He is coming soon, and when He comes soon, soon, all things will be made right, all things will be made new. We ask that You'd help us understand these things, we pray that this would be an encouragement to us that are here, we pray that You'd be glorified as we think about these things this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So when you think of the word utopia, what comes to mind? What is utopia? Well, utopia is defined as as an imagined place or state of things in which everything is is perfect. Uh, Utopian societies, they attempt to to achieve this perfection, this utopia, by having just the the perfect mixture of social and political and, and moral ideals. And this is something that has happened in every generation in all parts of the world, in every generation in all parts of the world, there have been these attempts to find utopia or to create a utopian society. In many ways, that's even what we do every year at this time of the year when we, when we hit New Year's, we make these New Year's resolutions. Well, what is the ultimate purpose of those? It's to make our lives better. It is to make our worlds better. It is to get us one step closer to our idea of utopia. Well, all of these attempts at, at a utopian society, every single one of them has failed. Despite the numerous attempts, utopia has never been reached. Why has the human race continually sought to create this utopian society? Why why do we pursue a perfect world? I think the answer is because deep down, all of us, 
We all know that this world is not right. We all long for something more. We all want something better. But there is a problem. See, most people in our world don't understand what the real problem is with our world. The the real problem is sin. And because our world is not able to recognize what this problem is, it's not able to recognize the fact that our deepest and greatest problem is sin, we're also unable to acknowledge the answer to that problem. Listen to these words from William Hendrickson. He wrote, People may vainly imagine that by means of better education, a better environment, better legislation, a more equitable distribution of wealth, they're going to usher in a new era, a golden age, the utopia of man's ardent desires. Their dream remains a dream. It is only God through His Spirit who makes all things new. In other words, there will never be utopia as long as sin remains. God alone has the solution to this problem, and He has promised to take care of it once and for all. Then and only then will utopia be possible. God has promised to deliver this through His Son. You see, through Jesus, sin is defeated. Through Jesus, all things are made new. And through Him and Him alone, our deepest longings and desires are satisfied. When He returns, life as we know it will end. But that end will actually be a new beginning. A new beginning where we will spend the rest of eternity in absolute beauty, in glory, in majesty, in perfection with our beloved Savior. And we see in in these last two chapters of Revelation, it provides us with a glimpse of what that's going to look like. And so as I said, we're going to look at several snapshots of this through these final two chapters. The first one I want us to look at is in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. So let me read that for us. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, there sh- there, neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So so John gives a vision of the fulfillment of God's covenant promises through Jesus. He gives this vision to John, and we see this this ultimate fulfillment. The first thing that we see here in verse 3 is this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the heart of redemption. Redemption is about having a right relationship with God. 
when God created the world, he, he created man and woman to be in a relationship with him. Where he would be their source of joy and peace. Where he would be their, their ultimate fulfillment. They would be complete and fulfilled in their relationship with him. But Adam and Eve, as, as if you know, know your Bible, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they were deceived. They believed Satan's lies. And so they, they sinned. They sinned against God. And they brought the world under the influence of sin. And the result of that sin is that this relationship between God and man was severed. It is now impossible for man to have a relationship with God. And this means that we are not complete. And that we can never be fully satisfied. We will never be completely fulfilled. And there is absolutely nothing. There is nothing that we can do in our own power to change that. But God had a glorious plan. He sent Jesus to fix this problem. He accomplished this through his life, death, and resurrection. And in, in doing so, he reconciled and he redeemed his people. This means that anyone who has trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that your relationship with God has been restored. And in Revelation 21, we see the culmination of what Jesus accomplished. Our relationship with God is fully and finally restored. Everything else we need to read in this passage is the result of this glorious truth. They all build on the fact that there will be no longer anything that separates us from God. Look again at verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So the first earth, the first earth, this is where we live now. It is the world that is still under the influence of sin. And, and because of sin, like it says in verse 4, there's tears, there's death, there's mourning, there's pain. Another way that this is described here in verse 1 is that the first earth also was characterized by the sea. Now that may seem odd. Like, why does he mention the sea? Well, we need to remember that when this was written, that the sea was, was a place of chaos and of danger and of death. And not only does he talk about the earth, but he also mentions the first heaven. Why does he do that? Why does he mention heaven here? Because unlike the earth, heaven is not under the influence of sin. That is where God dwells. It is, is a holy and majestic and glorious place. Well, the reason why both the first heaven and the first earth are mentioned here is to highlight the separation that exists between the two of them. We are separate from God. But all of these things will be no more in the new heavens and new earth. When Jesus returns, the first heaven and the first earth, they will pass away. What does that mean? What doesn't mean is that some people propose that, propose that it's, it's like an annihilation, that God's just going to destroy everything and start new. It also doesn't mean that he's talking about some kind of reincarnation. You see, Jesus is going to come to restore and to purify the old. Listen to how another commentator explains this. He says, that The very foundation of the earth have been subjected to the purifying fire. Every strain of sin, every scar of wrong, Every trace of death has been removed. Nature comes into its own. All of its potentialities, dormant so long, are now fully realized. What an amazing promise. The new heavens and the new earth will be a place where there is no more pain, 
No more sorrow. No more death. No more sin. The influence and the result of sin and death will have no place in the new heavens and new earth. The former things have passed away. Can you imagine living in a place like that? Can you imagine living in a world where there is no more sin, where there are no more effects of sin? It's, it's, a fully, it's impossible for us to fully comprehend this because sin is such a part of our life. And sin is such a part of our world. And yet, if you are a follower of Jesus, that is your future. And as, all great, as, as great as all these things are, that is really not the, the, the greatest truth of all. That is not the most wonderful thing in this passage. The, the glorious truth of this passage is that we will be with God. As I said earlier, that is ultimately what this passage is about. We get our first glimpse of this in verse 2. It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what does John see here? In a sense, it, literally, he sees heaven on earth. The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven onto the earth. Heaven and earth are made one. There will be no separation of the two in the new heavens and new earth. God will freely dwell with his people. He will freely dwell among his people. Listen to these words from Ezekiel chapter 37. It says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There are other passages and prophecies that are similar to this one, and we see here in Revelation 21 the fulfillment of these prophecies. God keeps his promise. His presence will be among his people. Now that seems, I mean, that's a great truth, and for some of us that may seem far-fetched. How do we know that that's possible? How do we know that we can trust in that promise? Look what we see in verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God reminds Jesus once, or reminds John of who he is, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, that he is the beginning and the end. God is both the creator and the consummator. His purposes were accomplished at the beginning of time by his word, and he will bring them into their full and final realization. He is absolutely sovereign from eternity past to eternity future. This is why he can say, it is done, in verse 6. Think about that. God has given John this, this future vision of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And yet, he confidently refers to it as a past action. It is done. Why? It is because of who God is, that he is eternal, that he is sovereign, Therefore, this vision, this promise is guaranteed. That is the confidence and hope that we can have in this promise. If you trust in Jesus, you will be in the new heavens and new earth. You will be in the presence of God for the rest of eternity. This is not just some wishful thinking. This is not a, some kind of blind hope. It is a, a rock-solid promise. It is a promise that we can trust. It is a promise that will be fulfilled. But that is not true for everyone. Because look what he writes in, in verses 7 and 8. He says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, 
the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. One of the things, if you read through the book of Revelation, you'll quickly realize is Revelation, time and time again, shows us that there are only two types of people. It makes it very clear that there are only two options. And it's all dependent upon your relationship with Jesus. You see, you either have a relationship with Jesus or you don't. You either have faith in Christ or you don't. There are no other options. And if you do, if you do have faith in Christ, if you belong to him, then you are the ones here described as conquerors. And in the vision that we read here in verses 21 and 22, that is your heritage. You are one of God's sons or daughters. But if you do not have faith in Christ, if you are not trusting in him, then according to this passage, your portion will be the lake of fire where you will be separated from God for the rest of eternity. That's a sobering reality. You see, this letter, Revelation, was written. It was written to encourage believers. It was written to be a blessing to us. But it was also written to convict sinners and to lead them to Christ. So if you're here this morning and and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it is not too late. I I ask you to, to call upon him, to repent, and to believe in him. But if you are here this morning and you do trust in Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior then rejoice. Because despite your many struggles, despite your sin, you are secure in Christ. And one day, one day you will see him face to face. The the rest of these two chapters, they provide us with picture after picture, encouraging us with the fact that this will be true. We will dwell with the Father and the Son. God will be our God and we will be his people. His presence is will be with us. We see another snapshot of this in, in verses 9 and 9 through 14 of chapter 21. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And having the glory of God, its radiance like a, more, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So in this passage, we get a further description of the New Jerusalem. It is is a place of of beauty, and of glory, and of majesty. It is also a place of security. But most importantly... It is a place of God. We see that in verse 11 when it is described as having the glory of God. But we also see this in verse 10. See, it says, John is carried off to a great high mountain to see this sight. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that John is taken up to a mountain to see this sight? Well, what is not being said here is that the angel just wanted to make sure John had the best seat in the house to get the greatest view of this city. Now, it's significant because God often appeared to his people on the mountain. One one of the most significant one of these is is found in in Exodus 19 and following. This is when God gives his law to Moses. He gives his law to his people. The giving of the law is connected to the covenant that God made with his people. 
And one of the ways that we can understand the law of God is that it represents what God expected of his people if they wanted to remain in his presence. The law reflects his character. It represents what is truly best for his people. And so if they wanted to, to remain in the presence of God, they must keep his law. And this leads us to another purpose of the law. And that is that the the law also showed us that we could not do this. That we could not keep the law perfectly. Now that may seem unfair. Why why would God give the law to his people, expecting them to keep it, but knowing that they are not going to keep it? Why did he do that? Well, because he also gave us the law to show us our weakness, and ultimately to show us our sin, and to show us our utter dependence upon God, and not upon ourselves. The law was given to show us that our only hope is to trust in God. Not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in other things, but to trust in God. If God wanted us to keep the law, He would have to be the one to provide a way for that to happen. And that leads us to another mountain. To Golgotha, where Jesus hung on a cross and He died for sinners like you and me. Jesus, He kept the law perfectly. And yet, He died as a sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin upon himself, and he gave us his righteousness. We're going to talk more about that next week. Our, Our sin, which separates us from God, he took that away. And his righteousness, his perfect law keeping which enables us to live in the presence of God, He gave that to us. Jesus fulfilled the law. And here in Revelation 21, we see the results of that. We are enabled and we are invited to come up on the mountain and to live in God's presence in the new Jerusalem. That is only possible through Jesus. God has fulfilled His covenant promise. We will be in His presence on the mountain. And this leads us to another snapshot. We see this in verses 15 through 16. It says, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And then down in verse 22 it says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So we see here in verses 15 and 16 that John is, is witnessing the measuring of the new Jerusalem. And there are two things that we should notice. First, it is immense. It is huge. 12,000 stadia is equivalent to around 1,300 miles, a little over 1,300 miles. But second, and more importantly, is that the city forms a perfect cube. Now, why is that significant? Well, listen to how the temple was described in 1 Kings 6.20. It says, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. So the inner sanctuary in the temple, which was known as the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place, This is the the place where God dwelled among his people. It was in the shape of a perfect cube. And so we see here in Revelation 21 that this new Jerusalem, that the whole city is in the shape of a perfect cube. In other words, the new Jerusalem, the whole city, will now be the holy of holies. It will be the place where God dwells with his people. And in the Old Testament, the, the, the holy of holies, the most holy place in Solomon's temple, it was a small place and it was protected by curtains. It was separated from the outer courts, and only the high priest was able to enter it once a year. 
Because there was separation between God and his people. Because God was holy and we are sinful. But that will no longer be the case in the new Jerusalem. And to drive this point home, we see here in verse 22 that there will be no temple in the city. Why? Because it will no longer be needed. You see, the the whole city will be the temple. Listen to what Simon Kistemacher says. He says, throughout Revelation, John has mentioned the presence of a heavenly temple. He repeatedly depicted the temple as the very place where God dwells. But now when God takes up residence in the New Jerusalem, John writes that the holy city itself has become the temple. The holy of holies in Solomon's temple was constructed in the form of a cube. Now the holy city itself is a cube where God dwells in which he fills completely with his sacred presence. The saints in the city are never outside his presence, for God never departs from his people. They have immediate and direct access to him. When Jesus was crucified, the curtain that separated the the most holy place, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, was torn into two. And we see here in Revelation the, the final culmination of that, that there will be nothing that separates us from God, and that we'll have immediate and direct access to him for the rest of eternity. So we see God's presence on a mountain, and we see God's presence in the temple, which is the new Jerusalem. And in, in the beginning of chapter 22, we see God's presence in another place, and this is a garden. It says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So our attention is turned to a garden. It's interesting that the Bible actually begins in a garden and ends in a garden. And there are many similarities between these two gardens. They both have the river of life running through them. They both have the tree of life in it. And most importantly, they both have God's presence within the garden, his presence with his people. But what I want us to notice is what is different in this garden from what we see or find in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. The thing that's missing is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's nowhere to be found. And that is significant. You see, God placed this tree in the Garden of Eden to test Adam and Eve, to test their obedience to him, to test whether or not they trusted him, to provide for them everything they needed. And and we know the answer. We know that they did not pass that test. We know that they believed Satan's lie and they took from the tree, that they disobeyed God and they fell into sin. And so therefore God expelled them from the garden. Adam failed the test. But here in the garden in the New Jerusalem, there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? It's because Jesus passed the test. He has reversed the curse that was brought on by the first Adam. And all of us who have trusted in Jesus, we have passed the test because of him, because of our union with him. This means that we have been made holy, that we have been made righteous. And it means that there will no longer be any test for us to pass. You see, the new heavens and new earth will not only be a place where there is no more sin, but there will also be no more temptation to sin. We will have permanent and free access to the tree of life. We'll have free access to the river of life. We'll have free access 
to God himself. And everything about this garden is focused on the presence of God. And because of Jesus, you will one day be in that garden. It is a picture of, of, of intimate fellowship. It is a picture of abundant, overflowing life and blessing. So we see in these passages that with, because of Jesus, that we will be with God on his mountain. We will be God, with God in his temple, the new Jerusalem. We will be God, with God in his garden. And then finally, just looking at the passage I read, verses 14 and 15 again, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So this is where the, the vision of the New Jerusalem ends. And once again, we're reminded that there are only two types of people. There are those who are in the city and then there are those who are outside the city. Those that are outside the city, they are the unrighteous. And if we're honest, that is where we all deserve to be. None of us deserve to be in the city because all of us are sinners. None of us are righteous. But because of God's mercy, because of his love for you, he has invited us into the city. This passage is made clear when we remember what Jesus said in John 10. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out to find pasture. Jesus is the door. He is the gate. He is the way. Redemption and reconciliation come in no other way. It is only through Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we have access to this new Jerusalem. It is only through Jesus that we will enter the new heavens and new earth. He has opened the door and he has drawn us in. He has cleansed us by his blood, and he has clothed us in his robe of righteousness. Through Jesus, you will enter through the door, through the gate, and you will have the right to the tree of life, and you will dwell with God forever and ever and ever. Everyone else will be permanently left out of this city. Everyone else will spend eternity in hell. But if you trust in Jesus, you have life. If you trust in Jesus, you have hope. The question really is whether or not we actually believe that. Are you longing for this day? Are you waiting with eager anticipation for Jesus to return? Because he is coming. Jesus tells us that himself in verse 20. He says, surely I am coming soon. And this should cause us to rejoice. Because we have confidence and hope that Jesus is coming I might have shared this with you some time ago, but I should preface this by saying Jenny gave me permission to share this so I don't get in trouble. But Jenny has this habit that just drives me crazy. And that habit is that she likes to read the end of the, any book she wants to read, she likes to read the end first. So she'll read the last couple of chapters, and then based upon the ending, she'll decide whether or not she wants to read the rest of the book. In some ways, it makes sense, because the way, in her mind, and how she explains it is, if she doesn't like the ending, then the book itself is not really going to be worth reading. Why would she want to read something that doesn't end the way it, she wants it to end? So if you ever want to drive her crazy, get her one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. But I think something about that that is actually good, and is, is just, when I read these last chapters of Revelation, I'm reminded of, is... is 
We know the ending of our story. We know the ending of God's story. And it is a good and glorious ending. And therefore, it makes the story worth reading. It makes our lives worth living. So do you know the end of your story? Jesus will return. When he returns, all things will be made new. That gives us great hope. That makes your life worth living. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for the promise that you've given us that you will return. Lord, I pray that you would give us great hope and and faith in your promises. But I do pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, I pray that today would be the day that they come to know you. That you would open our hearts and that you draw them to yourselves, to yourself. Lord, I pray for the rest of us that do know you. I, Lord, I ask that this would be a great encouragement to us, that we would rejoice in the fact that you have promised to return, that we'd understand that that makes all the difference in the world and how we live out even today. That your story has a glorious end, that your story is worth living out. And Lord, I pray that that would give us great hope and that we'd seek to bring you glory in how we live out each day. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.